Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you uh, this morning as we open God's Word together and looking at uh, Philippians 4 together today. And uh, thank you, Matt, for sharing our our scripture reading with us and and for Diaco as well. Uh, If you want to meet a joyful brother in the Lord, Diaco is, uh, he, he should be the picture under the word joy in the dictionary. That's just his, his life. Uh, even, even in sharing some of his difficulties, he ends almost every sentence with praise the Lord. So, uh, you know, that's, that's just his way and we're thankful for him. But, um, also want to thank, um, my fellow pastors, Grant and, and Andy for bringing God's word over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Grant from Psalm 56 and, and Andy from 1 Peter 5. I'm just thankful for these brothers and how God has brought us together uh, in leadership of this church. And so we're going to close out this series today looking at Philippians 4. Uh, the series has been called Anxious for Nothing, and that title really comes from uh, this particular passage of Scripture. And so we're going to close this series on anxiety out uh, today with the Apostle Paul's instructions to the church at Philippi. And if there were one word to summarize the book of Philippians, it would be joy. We find joy given as an exclamation point at the beginning of each chapter in this book and several other times throughout this book. And so We're going to look today at what I'm calling the charge for the anxious. And it's very much wrapped up in this great gift of Christian joy. And so we're going to see four commands today that we need to heed as we continue to live in a day filled with great anxiety. And so here's our key truth for today. Those who have fallen into the trap of ungodly anxiety are to do these four things. This is our remedy for the anxiety that we may feel, may get wrapped up in, may be entrapped by. So for those who have fallen into the trap of an ungodly anxiety, the, the Apostle Paul will give us four commands, four charges, if you will, four admonitions that we are to heed if we find ourselves becoming anxious. The first of these is this. Those who have fallen into the trap of ungodly anxiety are to be rejoicing in the Lord. Now, these two things may seem to be antithetical to one another. If I'm anxious, I'm probably not going to be rejoicing. And yet in the midst of great anxiety, the Apostle Paul commands the church at Philippi again and again to rejoice. He is showing us that for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus Christ, joy is actually a choice that we can make. It's not just a feeling that we might have. That joy is an obedience to the Lord. Marcus Bachmule said, Joy is a basic and constant orientation of the Christian life. It's the fruit and evidence of a relationship with the Lord. Believers in this room, 
We are to be a joyful people. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. Remember the fruit of the Spirit is love, then joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things the Spirit bears out in our lives. These are not optional equipment in the Christian life. These are the signs that the Spirit of God has changed us and transforming us into the image of Christ. So we're to be rejoicing in the Lord, but we might ask, well, what do we have to rejoice about? We look around today and we see all kinds of circumstances that are out of whack. And we've talked about many of those over the last six weeks. And so I'm not going to belabor that point. You know what we have to be anxious about. We look around, we can see it. But what do we have to be joyful about? That's what the book of Philippians reveals to us. If we go back to chapter one, you can flip your Bibles over if you want to, to chapter one. From the very beginning of this letter, the Apostle Paul reminds them of their first reason for joy in chapter 1 is that there is joy to be found in gospel partnerships. There's joy to be found in gospel partnerships. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with what? With joy. His prayers were made with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of the depth of fellowship they enjoyed. Because they were co-laborers for Christ. Because of what they had seen God do in them. And then what they were watching God do through them. He said there is great joy to be had. Because I'm seeing the effects of these gospel partnerships. Both in my own life and in our lives lived out together. So there's joy to be had in gospel partnerships. Then in chapter 2. He shows them that there is joy to be had in gospel patterns, in what the gospel produces in our lives. In particular, these patterns of of unity in the body and humility being produced in the body as well. That we are united with one another, that gives us joy. But we are also seeing the humility of Christ produced in us, that too should bring us joy. So Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2, he writes, If there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there's any comfort from love, and there is, if there's any participation in the Spirit, and we have, any affection, sympathy, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's speaking to them about their unity that will increase their joy. And again, uh, an essential element of that unity will be what he describes in the verses to come in chapter 2 of their humility toward one another. In, in following Christ, we are going to be a people characterized by a joyful humility. That unites us with one another. Once again we have great reason to rejoice. He was writing this from a Roman jail cell. He was writing this being handcuffed day and night to a Roman centurion. 
He was writing this in a place of being imprisoned because of his faithful proclamation of the gospel. And so he could say to these who were experiencing persecution, persevere, press on and persevere joyfully. That's what we so often miss. We think perseverance is is drudgery. We think perseverance is, well, I just got to get through this. And he's saying, no, persevere in joy. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, notice his affection, even as he's in that jail cell, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. His affection for them. His joy in them as they persevered in the gospel. Church, in anxious days we have much to rejoice over. Let us be a rejoicing people. But then this joy produces an attitude in us that we desperately need in the current moment in which we are living. So look there at verse 5. So Paul has said, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So first, we're called to be rejoicing in the Lord. But then, those who have fallen into the trap of ungodly anxiety are to be reasonable toward one another. Now, if you go and search various translations of Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, you're going to find that word reasonable translated in about a dozen different ways. And in some translations, it's translated gentle. In some, it's translated gracious. In some, it's translated modest. In others, it's translated uh, moderate. There's all kinds of different uh, translations of this particular word. Uh, I tend to think that probably the best translation, well, by the way, first of all, the reason that there's so many different translations of this word is because the greek word that's being translated has about a dozen different nuances there's one word in greek that means about a dozen different things in english and so that's why there's so many different translations but in the context here i would say that probably the the best translation of this word is is it's a reference to gentleness It's a reference to a Christ-like attitude. Because again, if you go back to Philippians 2, what has he been talking about? He's been talking about the attitude or the mindset of Christ. And I think he's picking that up again here in chapter 4 and reminding us that the the joy that we have ought to be producing something in in us, which is this this reasonableness toward one another. But that, that really is speaking of the character of Christ and his gentleness this is i believe the christ-like attitude of a gentle humility we've seen this before we look back to earlier messages in this in this series and we've spent some time in matthew 11 where jesus says come to me all you're weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am what i'm gentle and lowly in heart Matthew 11:29 take my yoke upon you learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls rest from your anxiety that'll lead on into an eternal rest 
So this Christ-like attitude in demonstration in our relationships with one another. That we are to be reasonable, be gentle, be moderate, be, be considerate of one another as we consider the anxieties that are swirling around us. Because a lot of times it's our anxieties that cause us not to be gentle toward one another. Cause us to be short with one another. Cause us to mistreat one another. When we are the most anxious, we are the most tempted to not act in a Christ-like way toward one another. And that's why he's calling us out of our anxiety first to joy. And then the product of that joy will be this gentle and lowly attitude that we will exhibit toward one another. But he, he grounds this in something really interesting. He says that we would be reasonable toward one another. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone or your, your gentle humility be known to everyone. And then we could very easily skip over the next phrase, but it's so crucial when he says, the Lord is at hand. The question that's been asked is, what's Paul talking about when he says the Lord is at hand? Is he talking about the Lord as at hand in terms of his imminence, his nearness to us at all times? Or is he talking about the Lord as at hand in terms of his promise to return for us? And I think Paul leaves it vague on purpose. Because I think he's actually speaking of both of those things simultaneously. That he is talking about and reminding us of the promise both of the continual presence of Christ with us and the promise of his appearing his coming for us I think he's speaking about both of those things simultaneously and this ought to again bring us great joy but also bring us great gentleness as we consider our interactions with one another because Christ is with us and he is coming for us kent hughes said likely the apostle has both time and space in view that the lord may return at any time therefore we ought to be gentle and humble toward one another but also that he's always with us remember that continual promise in the scriptures i'll never leave you or forsake you that he is with us and he is coming for us this ought to cause us to act in gentleness and humility toward one another. And so we are to be rejoicing in the Lord. We are to be reasonable toward one another. And thirdly this morning, those who have fallen into the trap of ungodly anxiety are to be requesting from the Lord. We're to be calling upon Him in the midst of our anxiety. Not just sitting back and griping about how things, how good things used to be and how we wish that we could go back to this or that time. How we, you know, we wish things could get back to normal. How much have we heard that over the last two years? And perhaps what we thought of as normal will, will never return. Perhaps there's a, a new normal. But what do we do in the midst of our anxieties? Paul gives us again the remedy. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he calls God's anxious people to one of God's most gracious gifts, the gift of prayer. 
rather than grumbling or complaining, rather than living our lives racked by fear and anxiety, we are called upon to be a people of prayer. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. And how are we to pray? As we look at what Scripture shows us about prayer, I always think about Jesus' disciples coming on that day when they had witnessed Him deep in prayer, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. They never asked Him to teach them how to walk on water or preach great sermons. They never asked Him to teach them how to grow huge churches or to perform mighty miracles. They did ask Him, Lord, teach us to pray and that same request needs to be in our hearts as well lord teach us how to pray we see this pattern in scripture related to prayer and we've seen this before but i want to show it again this morning as he says in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving let your request be made known to god he's reminding us that there there are various elements of prayer that we need to consider first of all the element of adoration We are so quick in our praying. I know this is my tendency most often. We are so quick in our praying to run quickly to the place of laying out before God our laundry list of needs. And if you look at the example of prayer, especially in the Psalms, you'll see again and again, especially David is so good at this. David will begin not with his laundry list of needs. David will begin with praise to God. Reminding himself who he's praying to in the first place. That's good for us. As we come to the Lord in prayer, that we begin by asking, Who is this God to whom I'm praying? What is he like? How has he revealed himself? That's why I encourage you to learn to pray the scriptures. To allow the word of God to to give voice to your prayers. What God has revealed about himself needs to be front and center in our praying to him. So we begin by asking, who is this God to who I'm praying? Do I believe that he is the almighty God that is in control of all things? Do I believe that he is perfectly good and has my best interests at heart? Who is this God to whom I am praying? And then I pray. Another another portion of our praying involves this issue of confession. We don't see it explicitly here in Philippians 4, but we see it in many other prayers in the Scriptures. We see it even in Jesus' model prayers. He was teaching them how to pray this issue of confession, which is asking what, if anything, is standing between me and this God right now in terms of my sin. Our sin will hinder our prayers. And so we come before God, we take hold of verses like 1 John 1, 9 that reminds us that if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. We come bringing those promises before the God who made the promise and we lay hold of the cleansing and the purification that He does in our lives as a result of these things. And we confess our sins so that we might have unhindered communion with Him. That there be no obstacles in the relationship that we pray. Another element of prayer that we see again and again, and it's right here in our text this morning, is the element of thanksgiving. 
And in thanksgiving, what we are doing is we are basically thanking God for what He has already done in our lives. We're reminding ourselves that our God has been so active. Believers, reminding ourselves that He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us in to His marvelous light. We need to be reminding ourselves of that gospel truth day by day and giving thanks for the fact that we did nothing to earn this great salvation. As Grant was talking earlier about Martin Luther and how and how he was persecuted because his belief in, in, in our salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, alone in Christ alone that's what we are rejoicing in because as it pertains to salvation I bring nothing to the table nothing but my sin and my deservedness of the wrath of God but in his grace he provides everything necessary not only for my salvation but also for my sanctification So when he said, be holy as I am holy, he fulfills that through the work of his spirit and the work of his word. And we give thanks for these things. We recognize the work of God in us day by day, conforming us to the image of Christ. And we give thanks for these things. And so Paul says, you're presenting a request. Make sure you don't forget the element of thanksgiving. And then the fourth element of prayer that of supplication perhaps this is the element of which we are the most familiar and yet understand that this one needs to be informed by the first three you see once we have recognized who this god is once we have sought to deal with by his promises anything that would stand between us once we have given thanks for the things that he has already done in our lives then when we come and ask for his great supply then when we come and bring before him our desires for what he would do in the here and now, then when we lay our hearts bare before him, it comes not just as a laundry list of needs. It's not a spiritual grocery list. Then it's I'm dwelling in the presence of my father. Then it's I'm enjoying unhindered communion with him then it's his sweet reminders of all that he has done and continues to do for me and then the attitude of my asking is radically transformed and that's what paul's inviting us into not being anxious about anything but in everything By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And once again, these commands are not without a promise. Again and again and again, this gracious God who has revealed himself in the scriptures ties together his commands for us with his promises for us. And here it happens in verse 7. So those 
who've fallen into the trap of ungodly anxiety. First, to rejoice in the Lord. Then, to be reasonable, to be gentle and humble toward one another. To be requesting from the Lord, laying out our anxieties before this great and mighty God who loves us so intensely. And then finally this morning, we are to be reminded of His promises toward us. We are to be reminded of His promises toward us. And so here it is. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Is that not where anxiety lies? You see, we think anxiety lies in our circumstances. But it doesn't. Anxiety lies in our hearts and in our minds. And the promise here is that the very peace of God will serve as a guardian, literally as a a garrison over our hearts and minds. Again, consider this progression. We've been reminded of our call to joy and to be gentle toward one another. We've been called to lay our requests before God. And then this promise that the peace of God will serve as a guardian over us. And consider the Apostle Paul's situation. Remember where he is. He is in a Roman jail cell being chained to a centurion day and night. And so I just imagine him as he's writing these words, thinking, you know what? This is a great illustration of what God is doing in the life of the believer every day. As he looked to that Roman centurion who was standing guard over him, he was reminded that the peace of of Almighty God is doing the very same thing in the lives of all of His children, but doing it for their good, not for their oppression. And so I'll leave you with two final truths this morning. First of all, the reminder that it is the peace of God which will guard the believer. It's the peace of God which will guard the believer. J.A. Motyer said about this issue of peace, he said, detached from its New Testament content, the word peace is a sort of spiritual marshmallow. It's full of softness and sweetness, but without much actual substance. But if we study the scriptures, which associate peace and God, it becomes surprisingly full of strength and vigor. I'd encourage you go and and go to Bible Gateway or one of your Bible app softwares and just search the scriptures that include the words peace and God and see again and again the promises related to the peace of God. And we find two of them right here in this passage. We find, first of all, the peace of God guarding the believer. It's much like what we find in 2 Thessalonians 3 when he writes, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. That we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. And in this promise, He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And where does that guarding take place? 
Where does the Lord set up his garrison in our lives to bring about that peace which passes all of our understanding? It's in the heart and in the mind. Once again, the key to overcoming anxiety, church, is understanding that it is only right thinking that will produce right action. We first must think rightly before we can respond rightly. He will be the one to establish and to guard us. But not only will the peace of God guard the believer, but then look down at verse 9 and you see that it's also the God of peace who will guide the believer. He says that the God of peace will be with you. The promise of his presence once again, that's where peace is to be found. That's where peace is to be found. Well, you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things. Walk in obedience to these things and the God of peace will be with you. His presence is where peace is to be found. But once more, church, we must think rightly. We must take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Every anxious thought that plagues our souls must be submitted to the garrison of His peace. And when that takes place in our lives, we begin to understand how it is that the Apostle Paul can say to us, be anxious for nothing. Because it sounds like a pipe dream. How can we be anxious for nothing? It's when we're walking in these things. Walking in joy. Walking in gentleness. Walking in a prayerful attitude and constantly being reminded of his promises we're going to come to the lord's table this morning this beautiful representation of this gospel that we hold dear but again we want to seek right thinking in order that we might have a right response Even as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to encourage us to think rightly about what we are about to do. Philippians 4.8 will serve as our guide. Finally, brothers, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I would say to us, church, if our minds were consumed with these things, we would be anxious for nothing. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, let us see the truth of the gospel displayed In the cross of Christ. As we come to the Lord's table this morning. Let us see the honorable work. That he has completed. For us there. Let us see the righteous demands. Of God's justice. Fully met in him. 
Let us see the holiness of God conquering the sinfulness of man. Let us see the beauty of His broken body and His shed blood. Let us see this story that we are to commend to one another day by day. Let us see the supreme excellence of His love and His grace toward us. And above all, let us see our praiseworthy King crucified, buried, and then raised for our redemption. We come to this table to remind ourselves of the gospel. To remind ourselves that yes, His body was broken. Yes, His blood was shed. These things were done that we might be saved. He paid the full penalty for our sin. That single truth should leave us anxious for nothing.